0: Well, Joshua chapter 21, which is our text this morning, um, is a very long chapter. We only read the beginning of it and the end of it. It's long, but it is simple. And as it turns out, like everything else in the Old Testament, the Levites have a good deal of relevance for the church today. So we're going to look at these Levitical cities. We're going to make three points. The claim, the calling, and the Lord's faithfulness. The claim, the calling, and the Lord's faithfulness. So first then, the claim that the Levites make here. Back in the book of Numbers, Moses commanded that once in the land, 48 cities cities with pasture lands, were to be given to the Levites for them to live in. And now, at the end of the book of Joshua, that the land has been secured, all the other tribes have been given their tribal inheritance with all their detailed boundaries, the Levites have not forgotten the promise. They come before Eleazar the priest and Joshua and the heads of the other tribes And they do this at Shiloh, which was where the tabernacle was at this point. And they come there to make their claim. They say, the Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture lands for our livestock. And Israel then obeys. They they gave the Levites towns and pasture lands out of their inheritance, the text says. Notice that. The Levitical cities, the places the Levites live, come out of the inheritance of the other tribes. The tribe of Levi, they're to get no inheritance in the sense of no no contiguous portion of the land, like the other tribes. They don't get that. Instead, they have to live in these small cities, and the cities in view here are a couple of hundred yards wide. Right, they get small cities scattered throughout the land within the boundaries of the other tribal allotments. So in a sense, each tribe is to tithe. Right? Essentially a gift of a few cities from their land to the Levites. And this is because the Levites, as priests, ministers, they have the Lord Himself as their inheritance. And inheritance is a land term. And having the Lord as one's inheritance alters one's relationship to the land. And the Levites are given existence in a sort of landless way. And the permanent sign of this is that they have no tribal territory. Now, we'll come back to this But for now, note something significant. Even though they had a unique calling, much like ministers or missionaries might today, various church workers might, they still needed to live somewhere. They actually take up space. They're human. They needed a place for their animals. They needed some land to work. They have to tend to the same stuff everybody else has to tend to, it turns out. And so life has a certain earthiness, a certain mundane character for everyone, even for missionaries. And this text takes that seriously. And that's a wonderful thing. Life is is earthy and mundane, and by by mundane I don't mean boring, but I mean terrestrial. You know, and... uh, And God's revelation responds to that. God gets down into our stuff. Ultimately, God's revelation gets so earthy that it takes on your own flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. And God addresses you through the mouth of weak, sinful men, through words. He speaks your language. Through bread and wine and water and speech. Calvin says this is God being like a a nurse with with a newborn baby stooping down to you and lisping. This is how God communicates to us. He lisps like a nursing mother. And that's how his revelation is. It bends down. And so Israel, like the church, has to provide for those called into the ministry and support various works, which the church has always done. And the provision of these cities, this small piece of land, is a reminder of that. Right, Paul makes this point in the New Testament, does he not? In 1 Corinthians 9, he, says the, he draws on the Old Testament and says this means those who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. This is one of the reasons why we have the offering in the service. It's not a break in the action. I think sometimes we think that, well, this is a break in the action. But the offering is an act of worship. And we put it, we place it after the ministry of the word. There's a a reason why the offering's where it is in traditional services anyway. It's after the word, because after God's addressed us, we respond, and the offering is a sign of our total self-consecration to God. And so the text is reminding us of that. And another thing relevant here to the claim that the Levites make is notice their claim when they come to the leaders of Israel, their claim rests on this prior promise of God through Moses. The Levites are not being demanding. They're not saying, hey, everybody else got some land. We want some land too. They're, They're not. They're going back to the promise. They're asking God for what God had already promised to give them. And in this way, The Levites can teach us how to pray aright. Prayer is asking in faith for what God has promised in His Word to give us. That's what prayer is. Prayer is asking in faith for what God has promised in His Word to give us. And we need to constantly be reminded of this because We're desiring creatures and our desires wander. And this is why, as we've said before, this is why we have the Lord's Prayer. We have the Lord's Prayer so we can ground our requests to God in the very words of God's Son. We don't naturally know how to pray, do we? We're we're not good at praying, most of us. This is why Jesus is interceding for us. And it's why God, if in one sense we can say he's like a nursing mother stooping down and lisping to us, in another sense, he's like a great tender father who stoops down in Jesus and puts his words in our mouth and says, here, when you pray, say this, say this. And when we pray for his name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, For his will to be done, for the forgiveness of sins, for the provision of daily bread, for deliverance from evil, we can be assured he hears those prayers and he answers those prayers. And so, even the Levites, in the way they make their claim based on God's word, can teach us how to pray. Ask God for what he has promised to give you when you pray. I hope you pick up one of these August prayer sheets and you'll see on there that we're trying to use the two prayers of Paul, one's in Ephesians 1, the other's in Ephesians 3, to shape and to pattern our prayer lives so that we pray in a way that we're already asking for the things that God has promised. Paul prays that Christ would dwell in your hearts, that you'd have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. He prays that together we would know the breadth and depth of the love of God. He prays that the church would be filled up with the fullness of the life of God. These are the things we should be praying. These are the things that should order our prayer life. And the Levites remind us of that. So that's the claim. The second point here is the calling of Levites. The story of their calling goes all the way back to Genesis 49, when their patriarchal father Jacob pronounced a curse on Simeon, two brothers, Simeon and Levi, because they killed the men of Shechem, slaughtered them, because the men of Shechem had raped their sister Dinah. It's a gruesome story all the way around, which the Bible tells in an unblinking manner. And the curse meant that these two tribes would be scattered throughout Israel. And thus, if you go back in the book of Joshua where all the tribes get their allotments and you come to Simeon's inheritance, his land, it turns out that Simeon's land is wholly inside the land of Judah. He doesn't get his own separate land. And the Levites, they're still destined to be scattered, but they vindicated themselves in a way at the incident of the golden calf where they stood with Moses against the the apostasy and the corruption of the nation. And there at that incident, as a result of the Levites' faithfulness, they're set apart and consecrated as a priestly tribe which would care for the tabernacle and the temple. And the text tells us they have no inheritance because the Lord, now get this, the Lord and the offerings by fire are their inheritance. It's the Lord and His public worship, which is their life's work. They have no other calling but that, the Lord and His worship. And joined to the public worship of God, they had one other very important function. It's not in our text, but it's in Deuteronomy 33. They were to teach, the Levites were, the law of God to the people of God. Now, we often forget this, but this was the greater portion of their work. This was the greater portion. It's important to remember, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Only So you have these descendants of Levi. Only one slender line of those descendants were priests. That is, people who sacrificed at the tabernacle and temple. And that's the house of Aaron. Only Aaron's house are priests. The rest of the Levites were not priests. They would assist them, but what they were was permanent teachers of the law. So think about this. In in setting... In giving the Levites to Israel, God creates a class, a whole class of people, one out of every 12, if you will, roughly speaking, one tribe in 12, whose whole life work is devoted to Holy Scripture. So in the scattering of the Levites, leaving the tribe itself without a home base, it means that all of Israel, every last Israelite, can be taught the law of God locally by God's Authorized teachers. And so God is turning the tribal judgment into a blessing for the whole nation. The Levites are the guardians of doctrine and pure worship in every district of Israel. And they were to be devoted to the word so the people could be formed by the word. They could hear the word and be themselves devoted to the word. God scatters the Levites into the land so they can scatter the word through the length and breadth of Israel. He sows them into the land so they can sow the word into the nation. And so when you you think of the Levites, they highlight, as the book of Joshua often has, the centrality of the word of God, the need for, for the covenant law of God to be embraced by, to be taught to all the people. And so the Levites are a picture, a foreshadowing of the teaching ministry of the church. Teaching is basic. It's in the bloodstream of what the church is and does. We teach every man, Paul says. Timothy is to teach the word and entrust the teaching to faithful men who can teach others. The ministry of the church is Levitical. Because the church is a people of the book, the book of the covenant of the Lord. We teach, Paul says, in season and out. We teach and we teach and we teach and we teach. And we seek to sound the depths and the riches of this word and we do it over and over because it is inexhaustible and because it is our life. Because as the Levites' very landlessness, their very rootlessness indicates, man does not live by bread alone. The Levites are like a shining neon sign that says that. Man does not live by pasture land and houses and cities and borders or real estate alone, but by every word. Every last word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this brings us to one other very important function that the Levites serve for us. They're a sign, they're, they're kind of like a parable, right? Like a living parable, which is to mark the life of all the people of God. So you think of the Levites' uniqueness, they have no homeland. For the Lord and his word, his worship, is their inheritance. But this is ultimately true of all of us. No, No land, no houses, no wealth, no career, no person can finally be anyone else's lasting inheritance. These things are all temporary. In the end, everybody's a renter on the planet. There's nothing but renters and they rent for a very, 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 very short time. Our inheritance, which again is a land term, is the coming city of God. We're kept for this inheritance, Peter says, and it's kept for you. So that in the end, we are all Levites. And so they remind us vividly that we're sojourners here, even as they sojourned in the land of Canaan. This can be disturbing, right? You know, the book of Hebrews says of the, of the church, here we have no lasting city. I was in New York City the last two days, and I was thinking about this. I was thinking, well... This, thing's gonna, this thing is vaporizing, fleeting. It's not going to last. Right, it's no lasting city. You talk to New Yorkers, they're so embedded in being New Yorkers, they think the thing is eternal. They think it's permanent. They've lost all sense of being sojourners and strangers. Now, in one sense, of course, it's a good thing. I want to affirm this it's a good thing to have land, to have a familiar place, to have roots have earthly ties. No one's denying that these things are are not good. But we have to be careful lest we lose the disposition of aliens or wanderers. When the New Testament says of Christians that they are strangers, that they are pilgrims, that they are aliens, that they have no lasting city, it doesn't mean that that's happening up here in some invisible realm But down here, you're fully, you know, at home and acclimated to things. That can't be be true. We have to be careful. Our inheritance is the coming land of the new heavens and the new earth. And so the Levites remind us of this paradox. There's a tension in Christian identity in a land which is not our homeland. This is wonderfully put by an early church father, a writer named Diognetus. He's writing in about 120 A.D., and he says this. He says of Christians, For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast... And follow the local customs and dress and food and other aspects of life. At the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens, and they endure everything as foreigners." And here's the famous statement from Diognetus. He says, and every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is a foreign country. They're in the flesh, he says, but they don't live according to the flesh. They live on the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. In other words, Diognetus says in 120 AD, Christians are Levites. They're They're strangers. They're sojourners. They adhere to the covenant word of God above all things. This is a text about identity, which is, of course, all the rage these days. Our identity is in Jesus Christ, crucified and raised and coming again. And our homeland around that identity is the new heavens and the new earth. This is what baptism does, as we're soon to celebrate. It seals one's identity in Jesus Christ. It marks out one's inheritance. And it subordinates all other identities. So, you love your house. That's okay. You love the Hudson Valley. It's a beautiful place. You love America. Yeah, It's a mixed bag, but I can see why you'd love it. (laughs) Um, Good. Good, but don't love them too much. You better love them loosely. They don't define your identity. No human love lasts very long. Shakespeare says how quickly bright things come to confusion. So your house or the Hudson Valley or whatever, your political alignment, the United States, they're not in any definitive way your homeland or your inheritance. Your very citizenship is elsewhere. So the crucial lines from Diognites are these. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens, but they endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. So any land can be your home, if you're a Christian, precisely because no land is your home. That's the paradox. Because every land is a foreign land to to sojourners. Sojourners are not cozy anywhere. At at the risk of putting this perhaps too um, simply, things seem strange to strangers. Right? Things seem alien to aliens. And so there's a certain... And this is a holy thing. It's a glad freedom. It's a glad liberation. There's a certain Levitical rootlessness that's required of us. We often don't think of rootlessness as a good thing. But it is a good thing if we're aliens and strangers. There's a kind of uprooting. A spiritual homelessness is needed Especially of American Christians who are so prone to confusing the kingdom with their own nation's plight. And so this requires an alien pilgrim mindset to be like Levites devoted to the word. There's a connection here between being an alien, a stranger, and this lifelong devotion to Scripture. Because the Scripture does not speak in American accents. Right? You open it up, and it doesn't care who's president. It doesn't care about almost anything, right? It, it's telling a different story. The narrative of the, of the Israelites culminating in Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church leading to the new heavens and the new earth. That's the story. So it turns out, you know, when the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth, when he, he was... Uh, Uh, Sort of a liberal theologian. He sort of came back more toward the center of the Christian tradition in the early 20th century. And he did so, he says, through reading scripture, he discovered what he called the strange new world of the Bible. It's a strange world. The biblical world seems strange and far away if our roots are too deep in our own fading stuff. The problem is not with the biblical narrative. The problem is that we open the Bible and say, oh man, I can't get from there to my stuff, my situation too easily, so this is kind of boring for me, so let me just move on. You have to be uprooted, displaced, torn out, and then placed into that narrative. And that's painful. Scripture tears us up to liberate us, to replant us in the only stable place in the cosmos, Jesus Christ the indestructible humanity of Christ in union with Him. That's all there is to hold on to in heaven and on earth. So sojourners, it turns out, strangers cherish the word because they hear in it the accents of their country. They taste in it the food of their native land. I've always been struck by this in in Psalm 119, that great 176 verse hymn, to the law of God. In there, David says this. He says this type of thing three or four times in the psalm. He says this, I am a sojourner on earth. Hide not your commandments from me. His passion, his panting, as he says elsewhere in the psalm, after the word, is rooted in the fact that he's a sojourner on the planet. These are the words of a Levite who happens to be living in the king's palace. Right? David has all the accoutrements of safety and security and land and buildings that a person could have, but yet he can say before God, I am a sojourner on the earth and I pant for your word. So the final point is the Lord's faithfulness. And we saw that in the reading. At this point in the book, the Levites are given their scattered cities. And we get this great summary of all that God has done in the book of Joshua. It begins in verse 43. The Lord gave Israel all the land He had sworn to give their ancestors. They took possession of it and settled there. They had a rest on every side just as God had sworn to their ancestors. All the promises to Abraham and the patriarchs have been fulfilled. Promises which looked like they couldn't be fulfilled for centuries are now Realized. Promises that survived 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. The text says not one of his promises failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. This is really a declaration of praise. A kind of holy remembering of God's fidelity. God keeps his promises. This is why the promises of scripture are so important to us. Because God has promised to keep them. He keeps them, his word, every last one of them. And Israel is now settled in the land as we're coming closer to the book of Joshua. But Canaan, as we've repeatedly said, Canaan is not Israel's and it is not our final inheritance. You know, the Levites are sort of a picture of how Christians are strangers and aliens. But Canaan is a picture of a coming land, the city of God. Here we have no lasting city because we are waiting for this coming city. That's our true, our imperishable inheritance, our homeland. And you are sealed by the Spirit, the Spirit that breathed the Word, the Spirit that works with the Word, that Holy Spirit of God seals you. That's also what happens in baptism. And it seals us that we might groan and yearn for our homeland. It's the pledge, Paul says, of your inheritance. You actually have some of your coming inheritance now. And you might think, well, how do I have some of this coming new heavens and earth now? Well, you have the Spirit in you. The Spirit is the pledge of that future inheritance. The Spirit is the promise that the Lord Jesus, who's the risen, greater Joshua. He will come. He will defeat his and our enemies. He'll settle us, no longer as strangers and sojourners, in a land of rest and righteousness. All the promises of God, every promise in Joshua, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They are yea and amen in him. So even Levitical cities, point you to Jesus. Even boundaries and tribal land allotments, they are always pointing us to Jesus and to our inheritance, which is in Jesus Christ. He is the great story of the whole Bible, even those obscure, difficult parts of the Old Testament. So let us learn from the Levites three things. We should pray and we should make our claims as they did on the basis of, of the promises of God's Word. And we should cling to that Word, teaching and being taught as strangers, liberated strangers and aliens who seek a better lasting city. And we should praise the faithfulness of God whose covenant promises never, ever fail. Amen.